Please roam. We need to talk. Use the ladies' room. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The Ladies' Room. I'm Jane McManus, joined by Julie DeCaro, and we are here to guide you in conversation about all things sports, women, sports, COVID issues, and sports the Sports adjacent. Sports women adjacent. adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're not here to stick to any scripts. We're just here to talk about things that we find interesting. We definitely don't have a script. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of things we find interesting, Julie... There was a story in the news this week, a Wall Street Journal edi- uh, editorial <laughs> by by a Joseph Epstein, not to be confused with Jeffrey Epstein. And he was taking our uh, president-elect second lady of, of the U.S., Jill Biden, to task for using uh, the term doctor after having earned her doctorate because she's not a medical doctor. And so, I, I mean, I find this really interesting that someone needs to write an entire editorial about this. Uh, and it seems pretty pointed. There's been some there's been some backlash. What did you think of that? I mean, all right. First of all, think about the state of the world and all the things you can write about. First of all, I don't think we need to refer to him as anything other than Wall Street Journal editorial guy. I think that says plenty. By the way, I canceled my subscription a couple months ago. And when they asked me why, I said, I hate your editorial board. <laughs> that was pretty yeah. much it. It's a shame I mean, you only have one subscription to cancel. Yes, I've hated them for a long time, but they do have really good MLB coverage, which is why I subscribe. So, all right, that's neither here nor there. You know what it brought me back to? So of all the things in the world you're going to complain about, this is the one. You're, and you're not going after like Dr. Phil, who <laughs> I think we all know started calling himself Dr. Phil, I believe, before he had any kind of doctorate at all. It reminds me of this. And when someone else said, someone else wrote a piece, and maybe it was in the Atlantic where they said she can, that, that Dr. Jill Biden can flaunt her title all she wants. And I was sort of like, it brings me back to this whole thing that you get as girls. I, I don't know about, I hope, I hope it's different for the generations coming after us. But I know that in my generation, from the teachers, from mothers, from, you know, grandmas and aunts and everyone around, it was, you know, don't, don't be too smart. Boys don't like girls who are smarter than them. Don't be bossy. Don't be a show off. Don't, you know, and it, it's just, so you grew up with this idea and plus being in the Midwest, it's like you're apologizing constantly for being mm-hmm. smart or for being the best at something or for beating the boys in something, you know? And it's, it just reminded me of that thing. Like there are so many people he could, I mean, why didn't he write that about Henry Kissinger? Has he heard about Dr. Dre? No, I mean, what about, <laughs> like I, there are lots of doctors, Dr. Hook and the medicine man. I mean, right. like there are lots of people flouting that title. Uh, you know, why, why not go after them? I think Dre deser- deserves to be taken down after all this time. <laughs> You're not a doctor. <laughs> um, it, you know, I don't know. It's like technically, I mean, there's debate about this, but a law degree is a jurist doctor. And I have jokingly been like, I'm going to make people start calling me doctor just because like it's this whole idea of, first of all, someone made the point, and I wish I knew who it was so that I could credit them properly, but that you are, you are denigrating people with expertise in a time when we need expertise more than ever. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's a hundred percent. Do you know what it is like to finish four years of high school, four years of college, and then go on and do three more years in law school? I mean, that's a lot of school. It's a lot of debt. It's called the Juris Doctor, and I'm going to fucking use it from here I, on I, out. No, no one would blame you. I, I actually want to tell a short story about when I lived in England. And England, um, in England, they really do force you to use some sort of, uh, you know, like a 
Mrs. or Mr. You have to pick your designate, whether it's a, you know, doctor, Mr. Mrs., you know, Duke, Duchess. They're very concerned about I would what, go with you Duchess know, if I were where you. you fall. Right. Well, it wasn't an option, but I do remember oh. that. And I hated Mrs. And I, and yeah. I don't use my husband's last name, so it's not really correct to call me Mrs. Jane McManus. Same. Um, so, so I, I did when we signed up with a, with our veterinarian while we were in London, I, I picked doctor because you had to pick something. You were literally not allowed to get out of the office without picking one. So every once in a while I would get, if our, you know, if our dog was having some issue, I would get a call and it would say, Dr. McManus. (laughs) (laughs) And I had done it as an act of rebellion, not, not as some sort of claim to expertise, but you could certainly, um, if you wanted to, anybody listening to this, could call up the Washington, or I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal edit- editorial page and tell them that they they feel outraged about uh, the doctor that I used and um, <laughs> that they would like to write an editorial complaining about me. <laughs> and it was just, you'd be fully, you'd be well within your rights. I did it. I did it the wrong way. And then I don't know what the head of their editorial department's name is, but he came out and was like, we're not going to stop writing provocative pieces just because everyone doesn't like it. And I'm like, it's you're confusing misogyny with provocativeness. I don't know how so many of these like old stodgy white men wound actually I do know, but wound up like <laughs> running editorial boards, but it is stunning to me that these opinions are out there. And I just saw Malcolm Gladwell like defending Jeffrey Tubin like what come on people. Yes, now there's another situation that you found deeply upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Which part of it? I mean, the whole thing's the, the idea that you're walking into a regular old work Zoom and the yeah. next thing you know, you're confronted with some very personal details about Jeffrey your Tubin's coworkers. Penis. Yes. <laughs> exactly. I would not want to see that while I'm at work. No, probably not. No, but, you know, and then he got this immediate redemption story, which we've seen a million times in sports. I mean, I, again, I saw this piece go by today. I didn't even register with me who wrote the piece, but, you know, he got this redemption piece today about how much he loves... God, what is it, the Great Gatsby or something? And like, this has nothing to do with him whipping it out at work. There's always space for the Jeffrey Tubin loves the Great Gatsby story and the Dr. Jill Biden shouldn't use the term doctor, even though she earned it. Those are pieces there will always be space for. And it's because there are a lot of people out there who uh, feel very threatened about the way that the world changes and the way that women get to say, I'm sorry, I don't want to see my coworker's penis. And I am a doctor. And those are two <laughs> things that affront the status quo, right? They affront the way that business has been done in this country for the last 200 years, which should be, you know, th- things should be changing, right? We should get to the point where everyone's welcome in the workforce and they don't have to put their identity uh, on the side and pretend not to be not okay with stuff that's not okay. And that's unfortunately women, when they've been in the workforce, that's been part of the deal is that you have to just ignore the things that are unignorable. And we've reached a point where that's not okay. And of course, there's going to be a backlash to that. And luckily, the Wall Street Journal editorial page will always be a host for those (laughs) ideas. We'll always be there to double down on their terrible opinions. You know what I did love is that every single person, I think, who wrote a story about Epstein writing about Biden put that he has a BA in there. (laughs) It's just made it look like title envy. And having a BA is fine. It's great. I mean, having a BA is terrific. I think there's probably more people in this country that wish they could have a BA. But if you're going to go after someone who's a doctor and say that they're just flaunting it. Sure. Bachelor Epstein. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. So to move on to something that's more sports related, 
Although that there is some good sport in watching that unfold. Um, <laughs> I, I also want to talk to you about the idea of watching sports right now because, you know, things are kind of coming to a head with football and we're talking about the NBA is going to get started again and a bunch of other sports are kind of figuring out how their second season is going to be uh, formatted in as the pandemic worsens and we hit more than 300,000 Americans who've died of this disease and rates everywhere going up, deaths going up and sports being just as committed as ever to playing, particularly college sports, um, college football. And I just wanted to get a sense from you. I do not find it to be the same escape as I have in the past. And I find that when I'm watching a game, particularly a football game, because that's what I tend to watch, that I am confronted with the problems of playing in a pandemic over and over again. And that is getting in the way of my enjoying sports. Yeah, I think that's right for for anyone who cares about people in any kind of way. You know, I mean, especially if you're watching college sports, these are kids the same age as my kids who are not being paid for this, who are not in a union, who really don't have any say over this. And they are being put out there in the middle of a pandemic and they're not in a bubble. And they're you put in a situation where there's no way to avoid getting COVID if someone on the other team has it. I mean, think about basketball, you know, under the basket, everyone's pushing and spitting and gasping in each other's faces. I mean, it's horrible. And, you know, we heard today that Keontae Johnson is doing well and that he's um, responding to commands and he FaceTimed with his team. If you missed it, Keontae Johnson is the player from the University of Florida who collapsed on the court and was stretchered off and was in a medically induced coma, according to his grandfather, for a couple of days. The whole thing was terribly scary. And what makes it scarier is that Keontae Johnson reportedly tested positive for COVID over the summer. So that kind of thought never leaves my mind. And even with professionals who have opted to do this and had the chance to opt out, there was a lot of pressure to do this. And especially if if you're looking at like Major League Baseball, there's a lot. I mean, it's a very conservative group of guys in Major League Baseball. I mean, Someone was talking today about, you know, the vaccine and how many baseball players are even going to agree to get the vaccine. Like nobody knows. But it's I think it's hard to watch sports without those thoughts being far from your mind. And, you know, I'll say this early on. It was an escape. Like when the Australian Open started like that felt like an escape. But everything since then is I mean, I wasn't into baseball this year. There's nothing I love more than baseball. Um, It's just it's been rough and it's been um you know, just like there's bigger things to think about right now. And I don't find the escapism in sports like I have been. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I kind of felt like the WNBA and the NBA did a better job just because they tried to kind of sequester everyone off, not be such a burden on the community or a potential vector for community spread. And so that to me has to do with like, how are you comporting yourself and how does it as a league and how does it align with your larger values? And, and I kind of felt like the NBA with Adam Silver and shutting everything down in March with Rudy Gobert's positive diagnosis, at least they were trying to comport themselves in a way that kind of aligned with their values. And nothing's going to be hundred percent in a pandemic. We did a little research on it at Marist, uh, did a, one of a poll with the Marist poll, which is, you know, the best, uh, job perk ever <laughs> as somebody <laughs> who works at Marist and, and heads up the, um, the Center for Sports Communication there. And, you know, and, and it said, and, and the results were 56% of sports fans said that people shouldn't be playing indoor sports this winter, like basketball. And I was just really struck. And I was like, if, if 56% of people think that, because I've, you know, I've, I've been wrestling with that stuff myself. 
if 56% of people think that, then that's got to be part of what's happening with the ratings being down and everything. And that's kind of the biggest, Mm -hmm. you know, the biggest thing confronting sports as a business right now. And um, I don't know. I just kind of think it, because every time I listen to a broadcast, there's somebody talking about how great a job the you yeah. know NFL's done with COVID and they haven't canceled any games and isn't that great? And you're watching on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and it just strikes me. I, I bet there are a lot of other people who are kind of in the same boat. And I don't know if it's just the idea is, okay, we power through this really weird point in time and get back to a moment when we have a vaccine, people are vaccinated, we have herd immunity, and I don't think anybody's going to spend 10 minutes looking back to what this period of time was and how difficult it was to get through. Probably not. You know, one of the things that we wrote about at Deadspin that I, I sort of, I was like, oh no, is this where we're going now with the pandemic and sports? Is that the NHL apparently was putting feelers out about buying uh, vaccines, for their yes. players privately. And surprised? No. Uh, no, I'm not surprised. Because when it comes to, I mean, think of how bad the NFL is and then just know that when it comes to like everything, the NHL is 10 times worse. So, but but it, it struck me that they, and they got a huge backlash immediately and people are like, are you kidding me? We need to get frontline healthcare workers. We need to get people in high risk categories. We need to get essential workers. We're not giving them to freaking hockey players, which then just led a bunch of like meatballs to come out and start yelling about how hockey players are essential workers. And <laughs> the whole thing devolved from there. And that led to me getting off Twitter for the night. But, <laughs> Excellent. It, well, good choice. Good choice. And then but the NHL think, but, put something out saying, oh no, we would never do that. We, but I totally think they did. And I think they were shocked by the backlash. And I think they tried to walk it back. Well, I think the same thing happened with the White House when that report came out in the New York Times saying that they were that the White House, everybody who worked at the White House was going to get vaccine first. Sorry, all had COVID. <laughs> That's had this aside the point, Julie. You can still <laughs> you can still have COVID and get a vaccine first. You know, there's yeah. still the there's still the the um the what is it, the bespoke quality, <laughs> this this bespoke vaccine that you can still get. No, but I think it is. It's this idea that that sports have put themselves first at every turn in the pandemic. And why would they stop? Why would a sports league stop putting itself first and its economic interests first? Well, yeah. Um, And I mean, and they're backed up by people who are sort of like, Hey, I don't care what's happening in this country. The fact that I want to watch football on Sundays is the most important thing. I mean, there's a lot of those people out there. There are a lot, but I, but I do think there are fewer of them. I think there are fewer of them than we think. I think the, I think, uh, you know, just from, the polling that we did, um, where you have 58% of, of people who are saying that the government should be able to put restrictions on who can play indoors and how indoor games can take place this winter. And I, I you know, and that to me is like, okay, 58% of people say that, I mean, I, there, people are craving some kind of parameters on the way we're interacting as we mm-hmm. wait for this vaccine. People you know, are it, craving that. It reminds me of like, there's a lot of nights, because like I said, sports isn't doing it for me right now. There's a lot of nights where I'm sort of scrolling through Twitter, then I go to Facebook, then I play a game, then I go back to Instagram, then I go back to Facebook, you know, just like chasing some kind of satisfaction that I'm just not getting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder and I wonder if a lot of people are feeling that way. It's like you want sports, but then you watch sports and then that's not quite the same. And, you know, it's like and you can't figure out what it is that's going to scratch that itch, but it's it's interacting with other people which well i i think you're right it's hard to have it's hard to have focus like we normally do like the things the valves that you would have in in, like in and you know so many people are worried about jobs yeah um and what they're going to do with you know food over the winter i know you know part of what we've done is is donate 
on a regular basis to our local food bank to make sure that people in our community are taken care of. But there, you know, there are a lot, I think it is, I think it's just this kind of general unease. I will say that since the vaccine, I've seen the shots of vaccines going into arms, that does give me more hope than I thought I was going to feel as a result of that. Yeah. I was like, I must be more done with this than I thought. I mean, obviously we're all done with the effect, the devastating effect it's had, but just the idea of, you know, being stuck inside and not being able to go out and having, you know, having just, which are minor things compared to what some people in this country are going through. And I really, for the past nine months, I've been like, you know, this is okay. Like I'm okay. Like I'm, you know, I have enough food to eat. I have my family, nobody's sick. Like I'm lucky. Um, and that's sort of been the attitude I've tried to go through it with. But, you know, when I saw that first woman, I think her name is Sandra Lindsay getting a shot in New York, I burst into tears and it, it was just such a sense of relief. Yeah, I, I I feel you on that. And, and you know, it is a light at the end of the tunnel. We should probably, our conversation culminates now in a very hopeful note, which is unusual for us. Yes. <laughs> no, but I, I do. I have a lot of hope, um, but it is going to be a challenging winter and uh, a challenging end to the NFL season and the college sports season, it seems like, unfortunately, as well. On that note, let's get ready to uh, get into our interview here because she's a terrific guest. We are really excited to share this interview with you guys. Full disclosure, we were able to talk to Martina in the fall, and uh, we had to wait until the the podcast actually launched, now in December, to uh, to be able to share this with you. And uh, so some of the stuff might seem a little bit dated. Hope that you guys will forgive that, but we just thought that this was just too good to leave out of the podcast series, and we were thrilled that she was able to join us. So without further ado, we give you Martina Navratilova. Joining us is someone who was right at the top of both of our lists when Jane and I were discussing who we wanted to have on for the very first person and sort of announce our presence with authority. And we were really, really lucky that Martina Navratilova agreed to join us. She's a tennis legend, a social justice warrior, which I mean in the best sense of the word. Martina, thanks so much for being here. So this is your virgin uh, podcast or broadcast or whatever it is? It is the wow. first one. I did not know that. So I'm honored. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, how many you feel... did you ask before you asked me? As well? We asked it's nobody before we asked you. I'm <laughs> it's great. Thank you so much, guys. I Thank know you. you've never been in situations where you're under pressure in front of a lot of people. So I hope this isn't too much for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martina, like part, of the, part of the reason we wanted to have you on is because we know that you are very outspoken on a lot of social issues that are important to us as well. And, you know, Jane and I are both tennis lovers, and Jane actually gets to go to the U.S. Open, usually, when we're not in COVID times. And one of the things that we were talking about was Naomi Osaka and how, at such a young age, at the age of 22, she took on such a huge, um, made such a huge statement on a gigantic platform by wearing the names of people who have been victims of police brutality on her masks during every game. I know, you know, you too were someone who took on a social stance very early on in your career. And how do you handle that when you're 22 years old? I mean, I think I would have been a wreck. Uh, well, um, not only did she do that, but to just have the idea of, okay, what can I do, right? How can I make a statement? And I think it was just such a brilliant idea. And the way she, she announced it ahead of time when she got there the first day, she says, I brought seven of them. Someone might think that's cocky, but no, in case I get the opportunity and then she ends up winning the whole tournament. But she made a really huge statement the week before when she said, I wasn't going to play the match in the semifinals because of 
everything that's been going on. And uh, Jacob, Jacob, uh, what's his last name? Jacob Blake. 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 It's not sorry, I have a blank. Yeah. Um, uh, shot seven times in the back, etc. She wanted to do something, and she took a chance of saying, "I'm not going to play." And then the whole tournament said, "Okay, we're not going to play," and it's a day off. So she postponed the match. She won the semifinals, then she defaulted the finals, which actually ended up that was the final of the US Open against Victor, Victoria Azarenka. But so she took a big, big step there because she was basically uh, jeopardizing her preparation for the US Open. You try to get as many matches as you possibly can because of COVID, you couldn't. And now you are supposed to play, and you say, well, you know what, I'm taking a stance. So I applaud her for that more than anything else because she really was willing to take a chance on her preparation for the US Open. And then to come through with that idea of the face mask with the names, uh, seven different names of seven different victims. And, um, you know, just elevate the conversation uh, to that level. I spoke before the tournament, I spoke with Chris Clary, who writes for the New York Times and and he said, what would you do? I said, I wish the players would just take a knee before each match, just for a second, just kneel down. You know, when the at the uh, at the umpire's chair, when they're doing the coin, co- uh, coin toss, just one second knee. Everybody would do that. He says, oh, great idea. But then I don't know if anybody read it or uh, knew that that was a suggestion. I, I would have been doing something had I still been playing. I know I'd be kneeling at every anthem. Um, and I just commend uh, Naomi for that for that idea, for the stance, and then carrying it through like that, just raising awareness uh, so much. The platform she has is massive, and she knows it, and she's using it for the greater good. It's it's fantastic. It's so interesting to see her be able to do that in this particular era, given that she's you know a, a biracial young woman who plays for Japan, a society that has not been necessarily open to outsiders. And force, you know, coverage of the issues in Japan and, and of mm. course, in the United States as well. You know, you, you bring up the uh, institutional support that she got mm. right, from the tournament, from ATP, WTA, right. and USTA. The, those, those three rarely agree on anything. And here she gets them to agree to take a day off. I wonder, if you would things have been different for you and for prior players had there been that kind of institutional support on issues like this? Oh, absolutely. And that's what we never had. That's why we had to rebel and boycott and start our own association or our own tour, whatever. And then we're penalized for it or threatened with uh, with uh, expulsion or not being able to play, etc. So, yeah, times have changed. And when the institutions are on the side of social justice, that's when you know you really turn the corner. And and I applaud the USDA and, and the ATPWT. Of course, we've been on the forefront of, of social uh, reform and social uh, justice for a long time, but uh, but to to have it from the USTA and the powers that be, you know, very established. I mean, look, the USLTA when it was the was still an L, L to the name was as old fashioned. I don't want to say racist, but yikes! You know what Althea Gibson had to go through back in the fifties. Um, they didn't want to let her play tournaments. And when she played Wimbledon, she couldn't find a doubles partner. And Angela Buxton said, okay, I'll play with you because she was a Jewish player and they ended up winning the tournament. What she had to go through and, and fighting against these institutions. And now you have the institution that says, we support you. Uh, it's, it's all good. Uh, 2000, I think uh, I was playing doubles at the US Open and I had a sticker for Gore, 
uh, whoever he ran with, uh, and I put it on my racket bag, and uh, they made me they, they they made the ball kid take it, put a towel. They didn't see it, and they put had a ball kid put a towel over my racket bag, and so of course I picked up the towel, and I had no idea. And then they put it. Yeah, I'm like, what are you doing? And so they told us to do that. I'm like, what? And then they asked me to take the like the sticker off that we're not allowed to make political statements. I'm like, okay. So uh, then, then of course, uh, last year, last year at, at Wimbledon, I played uh, a doubles match, and I had a white hat that Tom Steyer had sent me with impeach on it, and I and I played a couple of games with that hat until they, you know, said no, you can't do that. I knew that, but I'm like, whoops, I forgot. <laughs> So, you know, I've always been a rebel, and uh, but I'm just glad that, uh, you know, this is happening and that the institutions are supporting us for the most part. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that, that you sort of mentioned that it feels maybe a little bit like we've turned a corner here because Jane and I both having worked in sports talk radio, you know, and talking about social issues, you're always told stick to sports, shut up, stick to sports, nobody wants to hear this. Suddenly, it feels like, I mean, and those of us that know anything about history know that sports have always been political. There's always been political and, and racial justice stands taken in, in sports. And now it feels like that is becoming more accepted. I mean, I feel like there's still a, a, a segment of society that is mostly cis hetero white men that are going to scream their heads off about it. But for the most part, the rest of us, sports have always been political for. And it seems like that's becoming a little bit more acceptable. It definitely is. I mean, you look back at, uh, at uh, Tommy Smith and... Uh, John Carlos, and actually the guy in between, the Finnish second, Peter Norman, the Australian, he said, I support them. He never ran a race again. The Federation or Association, whatever, wouldn't let him run again in Australia. Uh, and he was just a bystander saying, yeah, I, I support you. So um, sports has been political forever and always will be uh, until we don't need to be fighting for social justice anymore. But th- those days are uh, far, far away still. Uh, and people that say, you know, should it shut up and dribble stuff? Oh, my goodness. Really? Uh, would you be saying that uh, if, if that athlete was on your political side? I don't think so. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that they're speaking out. And, and we uh, protests uh, have been very sustained. And now that there is a lot more white people uh, that, are, that are putting their, their skin in the game, so to speak, and supporting it. It makes a big difference. I, I know I felt that if straight people spoke up for gay rights, it carried more weight because it didn't affect them personally, but they were fighting for us. Uh, and when, when white people fight for civil rights, it carries weight, not because we're better or stronger, but because we don't really, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're just doing the right thing. And um, and so uh, now that the, the protests have gotten so much more... Um, uh, well, so much stronger and so much uh, it just keeps going. It's like a tsunami. It's not stopping. Uh, the, the, the powers that be uh, are paying attention. I mean, the start NASCAR uh, banning the, the Dixie flag, uh, the Confederate flag, uh, and, and the NFL now players are kneeling left and right. Roger Goodell is saying I didn't, wasn't listening to the players. It's, it, the sports have gone all in and, uh, and we're winning and it's nice to see. I remember when I started covering tennis in 1999, that was my first U.S. Open. And that was the first year that Serena Williams won um, the title. And, and she, you know, she and, and Venus really did bear the burden for any kind of discussion about race and social justice and didn't want to have to, I think, when they were younger, certainly. And that's changed dramatically and they've evolved as players and as women. And 
you know, now, you know, you, you look at Serena, 39 years old. Uh, her daughter is just about three and she has been stuck at uh, grand slam number 23. And again, reached a semifinal at the U S open and, and matched up with her old rival, Victoria Azarenka and lost. I, I wanted to ask, you know, what is it that keeps uh, Serena Williams from being able to tie? She's had, you know, I think five or six opportunities now. Grand Slam's getting pretty deep into slams and just comes, seems to come up a little bit short. It, it, what, do you, what do you attribute that to? Well, the four, she lost four finals. This was a semifinal. But uh, yeah, I think uh, the weight of history is, is very heavy and uh, it's really hard to overcome, especially when you get older. It's one thing when you have a chance to break a record when you're still young, whatever that record might be. But this kind of record, of course, it took a long time to get to it because it's just so many majors. And even though she's had four chances every year, it's not like the Olympics where you have one chance every four years. You have four chances every year, which is basically 16 Olympics in four years. It's still the pressure keeps building because she has been so close and not played her best tennis. This time, I I feel this is the best tennis that she's played and still lost. Azarenka played well. Serena didn't play badly. She still she had positive winners to uh, unforced service ratio, which was not the case in the other four finals that she lost. So I, th- I thought she played the best tennis, but still lost. And you know you get more nervous when you get older. Also, I think in that in that match she played such great flawless tennis in the first set. You you know you can't keep it up. And when you and when that first shot you miss, it's like oh no, it's here. You know I'm I'm going downhill now. And, and because you're older, you know, all the things that can go wrong and it's hard to keep the mind clear and, 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 uh, and not get muddled by, by stuff that, you know, just doesn't help you hit a, hit a good ball. Um, so this was the best that she's played, but this was also an amazing opportunity. Obviously, six of the top 10 players weren't playing. She never played a player ranked, I think, higher than 15. Um, Azarenka played better than a player ranked player ranked 15 or she was actually ranked like 40 when she entered the event uh but played well above that level so <clears throat> this was a this was a big opportunity to miss for serena uh, i think the french open's not going to be friendly for her because it's uh it's going to be wet and heavy and everybody's playing uh so then thinking australia next year but now she's in her 40th year so <clears throat> things are not going to get easier everything gets more complicated when you get older and now when you're playing for history uh, you, it's, you can't get away from it. No matter how you say it to the press, I'm not thinking about it. You are thinking about it. Uh, it it's there. Uh, and you see it, how badly she wants it when she's, you know, two all in the first set and she's going, come on. Um, it's because she wants it so badly. And it's hard to bring yourself back to the moment and playing just this one point because, you know, that if you don't play well, then that opportunity will go away. Let me follow up with that. Because I think the next question, and Julie and I talked about this actually before we spoke with you, is Margaret Court factor. Just what would it mean for women's tennis to kind of be able to usher her to the to the exit from that record? Uh, you know, she's a, a woman who, you know, has a, has a pretty strange place when it comes to the history books, right? She played in an era that was very different. I wouldn't say she's beloved, by people who look back on tennis and historians, and she's been a pretty controversial figure since then. Is it? Is that part of it also? Does that play into it? 
Um, for me, I, I don't think about it, although, you know, obviously what Margaret has been uh, representing and, and, and uh, saying, uh, which started back in 1990 when I broke the record and won, won ninth Wimbledon title and the press was asking her, what do you think about Martina breaking the record? And she says, well, it's all well and good, but she's not a good role model for our kids growing up. And that's all I heard about the next day, you know, uh, and and it went downhill from there. So, of course, that was a very personal attack. But since then, she's been an outright outspoken advocate against sex and sex as marriage, against LGBT community, particularly now against transgender kids. I mean, she's just all out there. And um, it would be great for somebody. And I, I don't think anybody will get close to that record. So Serena's the only one that can really do it. Just for that reason, it would be kind of icing on the cake. Uh, at the same time, Margaret, it wasn't um, like open era. They said, well, it's open era. But it, there never was, was a closed era for women. The, the men played the pro tour, but there was no such thing for the women. The women never did, were not able to play a U.S. Open or Wimbledon because they played on the pro circuit. There was, you know, there was not a, very much such a differentiating era uh, that the men have. So... Uh, she won those titles fair and square at the same time. And that's why I don't like to compare eras because back then the, the majors didn't mean that much. It really was, I mean, them, they meant a lot, but it wasn't the end all be all. Uh, I missed like five or six Australian Opens, a bunch of French Opens. Chris didn't go to Australia either. It was for us, it was about the tour and the season ending championships and really mostly supporting the tour. We played 18 to 20 tournaments a year, uh, including the majors. Um, and so we didn't, we didn't go after the majors. I don't even know how many I won until the press was telling me, you know, you just didn't keep track. When I got to the French open finals, like, okay, I got to the, you know, to the finals in Paris. And it wasn't like, Oh my God, my first major finals, because it was just different, uh, measuring stick back then. Um, quite frankly, I would have preferred to win the season ending championship than win the French open. So, uh, and nobody would say, say that now it's all about the majors. So it's different measuring sticks, but at the same time, it's still, it is what it is. Margaret is 24, Serena has 23, and it would be fitting if Serena tied her and then, and then broke that record. I don't care what Margaret Court says. My parents pointed you out to me when I was very young as an athlete, as someone that I should be emulating. So there oh, was- Oh, really? I hope I would, well, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I was just sitting here thinking when you mentioned Althea Gibson, that, you know, I think about Althea Gibson, I think about Billie Jean King, I think about you, now we have Serena, and it looks like, Naomi Osaka is also following. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's great. I saw this photo in the New York Times last year when uh, they unveiled a statue of Althea Gibson at the U.S. Open. And she's really been, an, you know, an unsung hero. And For sure. uh, I wish I had, I had, I mean, I met her many times, but I really had to talk to her. And I didn't really know what all went on back then. Uh, so... I saw this photo in the in the newspaper and, and um, Harvey Araton, uh, I, I called him up. I said, can you please get me a photo of this? Because I want to I want to put it on my wall. So here it is. Yeah, it's pretty great. And I actually read about Althea Gibson in Lou Moore's book, We Will Win the Day, which is a fantastic history of sports and politics and civil rights. Um, but, you know, what do you think it is about tennis that we get so many great, not just champion women, but also women who stand up and, and take stances about things that are important? Well, I think it's uh, the biggest reason for that. Tennis is an individual sport, right? So you take all the responsibility on yourself. You you win, you get all the credit. You lose, you get all the blame. 
uh, the other person was just better. So you kind of used to that kind of responsibility and making decisions. Every shot, you have to decide what to do with it. And you don't get to substitute yourself. You say, oh, coach, put somebody else in. I'm not feeling so good right now. So you used to that. Um, and you have, and, and also, if you do speak out now, especially the last like 40 years, when I, when I came out, I, I could still play tennis. I wasn't going to get benched <laughs> because I was gay. I was going to be able to play because I qualified. I had the ranking high enough. That was the only thing that really mattered. Tennis is a very meritocratic sport, very democratic. It's really just how good you are and not anything else, you know, how you look, whether you're pretty, how you dress, how you talk, you know, are your strokes pretty? Nobody gives a darn. It's only whether you win or, win or lose. So I knew I wasn't taking a chance and, and speaking out, you don't take a chance. So you're not risking anything, uh, you know, unlike the original nine who risked everything to sign the contract and start the tour. So it's a different kind of a um, opportunity that we have and and we're not afraid to take it because you know we got to where we are by by winning and putting our, our lives on the line uh, or our, our careers on the line on a daily basis do you think sports should be playing this year and i ask i mean you know tennis obviously is a different situation you've got one person on one side of the net one you know and they're far apart and you know it seems like social distancing isn't that big of an issue but you know, in a lot of ways, it feels like America just kind of decided we were going to have sports and we just have sports now, no matter what the consequences are. We're going to have football with guys climbing all over each other and spitting and screaming. And, you know, as quickly as we've seen COVID spread, should we be playing sports right now? Well, I think it depends on the sport. Uh, like, I, would not want, I wouldn't, wouldn't want my kid to play football or even soccer, but I would be okay with her probably playing baseball. Basketball and tennis, no problem. Golf, no problem. It's a safe activity. And and as far as the fans, of course, it's a, it's a tragedy that the fans can't be there. You get the atmosphere is so different. But you still want to watch them play and compete. And most people see the matches on TV, not in person. So it's nice to still have that kind of that escape. I think we didn't realize how much sports were a part of our everyday life until they weren't there. Um and and so it's nice to still be able to for the people to escape and and kind of get lost in a in a in a you know, in a match or in a uh, NFL game or what have you. But uh, I think football it's going to be hard for them to, especially college football with that many that many kids on the roster. It's going to be hard for that not to spread. But I think tennis. I mean, look, U.S. Open, not one person. You know, uh, Pear, uh, Benoit Pear got it before the tournament started because he was stupid and went to a nightclub or whatever. Um, everybody else was disciplined and, and it can be done. So I think sports should be played as long as it's safe. And I think you're so proof that it can be done safely. I always wonder about the resources issue, especially when it comes to something like college football and college, mm. you know, mostly is that, you know, you're putting that above in some ways what students are able to get in terms of testing yeah, and true. behavior, but I would love it if you could take some of the example that's been set, like what the NBA did with the bubble, you know, it obviously would have to be modified, but it seems like that would be something that would be useful for lots of systems to kind of get back to normal and, and having those, that be your priority as much as sports, as much as we, you know, obviously love sports. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree with you on the college sports level. I think you need to put the academics and safety above sports. Uh, these guys are not pros, so they don't need to be playing that game. Pros have that choice. 
and that's up to them whether they play or not. Uh, the college kids, I don't know if they had that choice. If they're on a scholarship, they have to play. If they don't play, they lose a scholarship. And so I don't know what the situation is there, but you know they're really uh, cheap labor. So yeah, it's another story, right, with the NCAA. Um, and and I really don't like that institution and what they do to the kids. But that's another story. But overall, um, I think you see how the US Open did it and did it in such a safe way that uh, schools, I would, if I was a school instructor or, or a uh, director or whatever, uh, what, what do you call them? Uh, principal. principal, thank you. I would be going, I would have gone there and say, and talk to those people. What did you do? How did you, how did you make it so safe? My kid just went to school for the first time this week, uh, but she goes to a private school and they went way overboard with social distancing. And I know she's as safe there as she would be at home. So I'm okay with that, but most most parents don't have that uh, that uh, luxury. So uh, it can be done, but it takes money, and uh, most uh, most schools and uh, most politicians are not willing to uh, support that. Yeah, Julie and I are in the same boat. We've both got kids that are you know learning in different environments, and it's been challenging, and it's been you know it's hard on the kids, it's hard on teachers. I, you know, I'm a professor at at Marist College, and that's part of what I do as well. So I've been in the quote unquote classroom, which I'm holding outdoors with everybody masked and socially distanced, but it's the way that we can be together. And I think, you know, relatively safer being outside, um, just given what the the stuff is, but it is, it's like a whole new world for everybody and trying to figure out is such a challenge. Um, do you think it will impact the way that the French shakes out? Is there, you know, you know, is are we just going to see Naomi Osaka win you know, tournament after tournament from now on, or, you know, is there, is, does this continue to impact the way that things play out? I don't know how much of this would have an impact on how the tournaments end up, who ends up winning. I'm, I'm not sure that the end result would have been different at the US Open, maybe on the women's side, because the crowd has such an impact when Serena Williams is playing. Maybe they would have helped her against Azarenka, but then they didn't help her two years ago against Osaka either. On the men's side, I think we would have had the same result. I don't. I don't know. It's it's an intangible that you cannot measure, um, and there's a different rhythm to the match. It's all about tennis now, right? There's the, the fans don't get into it, so you play between you're 20 seconds between points, and and it's more about just tennis. Uh, so the emotions kind of get taken out of it. Um, on clay, maybe you know the French crowd is not as rowdy as, as the New York crowd. Also, they're playing during the day, so alcohol is not involved. Although now they'll be playing some night matches. So we'll see how it shakes out. But I don't think COVID will have an, imp- an impact that way on who wins the tournament. It's just whoever uh, is prepared the best and whoever plays best tennis, period, with or without other fans. Speaking one, of COVID. Oh, go ahead, Jen. I, I just have one other thought on that because with, with Novak Djokovic and what happened. That was my um, question. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. You want to no, go ahead. <laughs> you know, it's almost like he thought he was playing, you know, that they were just hitting around, that they were just playing a ma- you know, he had a casualness to the way that he was interacting with his racket and the ball in a way that ended up, you know, hurting someone. Mm. But it was almost as though I, I don't know if we'd have a, you know, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, if you'd have a moment where he's on the court and playing and not a crowd. And it just seems to that you don't have the discipline of <laughs> the same, the same, the same. If that does come in, if it allows a kind of an element of chaos to creep in. Which, I think, go ahead. Which I think that was, it seemed like it was yeah. a, he didn't intend for that to happen. Right, and, right, right. You know, 
harmful. Well, he didn't hit that ball that hard. I mean, he hit it hard enough when it hits you on the throat. It, you know, I've, I've been hit by a hockey puck on the side here, and the part of the puck kind of compressed my trachea, and I'm like, oh, you know, I couldn't breathe for a second. It Ouch. scared the shit out of me. Oh uh, yeah, I have a actually mini scar on and drew blood the puck. So after that, I was wearing a neck guard. It was just a ricochet, freaky accident, but scared the daylights out of me. And that woman would have been terrified because she she didn't see it coming at all. She's looking there, and this ball comes from the side. But but beside that, uh, before the same match, Novak hit a ball, hit the crap out of it against the the side rails, right against the the signs that they have there. And I don't think he would have been doing it had the place been packed because the crowd would have gotten on him so much. There was nobody to get on his case except for the umpire who may or may not give him a warning for that. And apparently he had done it in all the other matches too, even though he was winning easily. So I think he was more cranky and he knew he could get away with it. There was no penalty to pay for that. You know, what people think on TV, who cares? You know, it's not affecting you on the court. So, yeah, you definitely behave differently when it's a packed stadium than if there's 20 people watching. I know I did. Uh, you know, I know that I ever broke rackets, but I still behave myself better when they're a bigger crowd. And especially if they're quick to turn against you. So I think that had something to do with it. Um, although that that what he did with that ball could have happened even with the full crowd. Nobody would have boot anything if it just hit the backboard yeah it was only a problem because the woman's you know woman woman's body got in the way so you might be right about that that he would not have been so casual about it and i think he was just annoyed that that kind of stuff was playing better than he was supposed to play so he didn't want to have to work so hard well you know speaking of djokovic how do, how do you feel about the fact that you know one of the best men's players in the world if not the best men's player in the world is i guess nadal's up there too how do you feel about him you know openly talking about the fact that women, you know, shouldn't be paid as much as men and then starting his new union that women's basically no girls allowed. Well, uh, I don't think that's going to go anywhere, uh, number one. But he said it before, four years ago, he made the same statement that women shouldn't get paid the same as, as men at the majors because men bring in more spectators. Well, if you really want to measure yourself by that, then Serena Williams should be the highest paid player, along with, with uh, Nadal and Federer. And Djokovic would be the fourth highest paid player, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't go based on that. Um, and also, it's just the right thing to do. I mean, women, the reason the majors are so successful and so popular is because both men and women play. They contribute equally. Yes, we play two out of three sets. Men play three out of five. I think they should play two out of three, but that's another story. We said years ago we would be willing to play three out of five, but they said, no, no, no we don't want you to do that. So it's okay, well, give us equal prize money because so you can't use that against us if we don't play as long a match. And by the way, back in the 90s, the, the ball was in play longer in women's matches than men's matches because the grass was faster and the guys would just hit big serves and volleys, and whereas the women had longer rallies and he would get more live tennis with the ball being in play with women's matches than men's matches, even though we were two out of three sets instead of three out of five. But I, I'm, it's just disappointing that Novak would be that nearsighted that he wouldn't see the big picture and was the right thing to do. Um, and, and kind of go back in time and say, no, we are men and we should, we should have more, but you know, of course, who owns the corporations, men, who owns the real estate, men, uh, and, uh, and, you know, there are many countries where women still don't have equal rights. So, you know, he's kind of would be validating those places and it's just the wrong thing to do. So I hope he comes to his senses. 
if anything, we should be pulling together now um, and, and have the ATP WTA put together rather than uh, have create a third association. And what are they going to do? Right now, we're still trying to figure out how to play tournaments the right way. And, you know, starting a new tour, what's that going to be like? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's bad timing, no matter what. Uh, it's bad timing. And overall, I think it's just not a good idea. Seems like he was trying to make a bid for being a leader uh, that he didn't do a very good job following up with that by by his play and by, you know, actually what he did on the court. Do you think, because there was some talk of um, combining the ATP and the WTA, and of course there's been talk about that for years and years, <laughs> starting with Billie Jean King, um, you know, when back in the day. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you think that will ever happen or are there just too many Djokovic, you know, who are going to, uh, have a have just you know and, and and I don't think it has to do with whether it's two out of three sets or number of spectators yeah. or how long a movie is. It's just they don't want it, and you, they're going to find some sort of hook to hang that on. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, probably, probably right. You know, the we've been talking about getting the ATP and WTA together for one reason, one and the biggest reason was to get the ITF and the majors to come to the table and say, okay, we're going to pay you the same kind of money that you get paid in regular tournaments because the regular tournaments, the promoters go out on a limb and they pay up to about 25% of the total take. It goes to prize money, 25% of the take. Whereas in the majors, it's maximum 10. It's mostly like 5% of the total take goes towards prize money. Of course, it was different ratio this year at the Open, but normal normal times, that's the ratio. So actually the prize money should be a lot higher than it is at the majors. But when the, if the men come to them, say, we want more money, they go, no. That's not going to happen because, you know, we still have the women and vice versa. So if the men and women got together, they would have a much better chance at bargaining. Maybe we should become one union uh, and then we would have a lot more power that way. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to happen, especially now. Again, it's such uncertain times. Maybe once we settle down with COVID and find a cure or a vaccine or whatever and things go back to normal, maybe then we can talk about that. But um, right now... Um, I think you're right, uh, Jane, in that, uh, you know, they may find an excuse to not do it no matter what. Martina, you know, I, I follow you on social media and I know you and I see eye to eye on, on pretty much everything politically and socially. But there's one issue that we don't see eye to eye on, and that is trans women competing against women mm. in women's sports. And I, I watched the BBC documentary that you did um, and I thought it was terrific. And at the end of it, I thought that you had sort of changed your mind and come around to thinking that, you know, women, trans women should be competing against women at all levels. But I know that you signed this letter on August 2nd that, that is basically against that stance to the NCAA. Can you explain to us what your stance is on that? Sure. Well, the stance is that it needs to be a level playing field. And, and once trans women go through puberty as men, and then transition and do their um, uh, protocol to lower their testosterone level. It's too late. Their, their bone structure is different. They're five inches taller. Their muscle mass is massive. And uh, no matter what you do with, uh, with hormone uh, therapy, et cetera, you will not lose all of that advantage. If you're a transgender kid that transitions before uh, puberty, you can play all you want. There is no, no, no need to make any kind of rules about that. But once you go through puberty, you have an advantage that's inherent that you cannot uh, do away with. And so it's not, it's not fair. Uh, you know, those high school boys that, uh, that now compete as, as girls, 
they've already gone through puberty. And, and when you're a girl and you compete against somebody that, you know, you have no chance of, of winning because, you know, they're stronger, they're faster, uh, then, then you have to look at that. So I'm all for inclusion, but I'm also for protection of women and girls. And most of all, I'm for fairness. And it's not a level playing field if you just do a self-ID and you say, oh, go ahead and, and compete uh, in, as a male or as a female. It's up to you. You get to decide. It's a biological issue, not a, not a gender issue and not a uh, uh, social construct or anything like that. It's all about fairness in sports. So it's a tricky situation. We want to include everybody, but, um, you know, at what, at what cost? You know, for me, my only experience with this really is personal experience is I, I played roller derby for seven years and the, um, Oh, did you really? Yes. 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 While I was covering tennis too. Um, but yeah. And, and the, and about, you know, 2008, 2009 women's flat track derby association had, you know, instituted its first trans player policy, which was inclusive. Um, and it, it wasn't enough, according to many of the women who are, were trans and, and played, um, but but they've evolved on it and they've tried to get better. But I remember playing against a number of players on teams and and it, it always felt fun and inclusive. And I didn't even, even with physical differences, I mean, maybe because it was in a team context, it never felt to me like it was an unfair at any point. And it could be the difference, you know, um, playing in a recreational sport uh, as opposed to to playing like a professional Sport. But for for me, you know, just coming from that experience, you know, that's kind of the place that I come from when I think about this issue in particular. Hmm. I mean, I, I, Julie, you don't agree. What what would be your solution? I'd like to know. I mean, I, I feel trans women are women, and I, I don't I don't see at least you know from my work in in you know sports journalism a, a huge number of, of women you know men identifying as women so that they can win championships. For me, it's just as simple as trans women are women. And that's, you know, I have a number of trans women in my life. I'm very grateful they're in my life. And, you know, it's, it's an issue that, you know, obviously you remain a great hero of mine, whether or not we agree on this. I, I'm curious, though, what do you think about someone like Castor Semenya, who very naturally has a higher testosterone level? And now well, she's lost her appeal in court of appeal in sport. Right. Go ahead. Well, she's um, Castor is uh, there's uh, several women that run the, those distances, 400 to 800 meters. They're intersex, so they're mm-hmm. not transgender. She she thought she was a girl. She grew up as a girl, but mm-hmm. biologically she's actually a male. Uh, so that's a, that's a tricky situation. And I was saying, you know, with Castor, I would just say, you know, too bad to get over it. You know, she she grew up as a girl. She's competing that way, but biologically. It's not a fair fight. Of course, you can say, well, some women are taller, some women are stronger naturally. I mean, look at Serena Williams, right? Her shoulder span is, you know, you go, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to mess with her, but, but she's all woman. And, um, Castor is, uh, is kind of, um, an exception to the rule. Whereas with trans, trans women, it potentially every male could be a transgender female. So it's a, it's a completely different situation. And, uh, now, it's it's difficult for Castor because uh, she's kind of forced to take uh, to take those testosterone blockers so she could compete, and um, and um, you know that she doesn't want to do that, and I don't blame her because she she lived her whole life as a woman. Right. Uh, she didn't transition. That's how she grew up. So it's a it's a uh, it's a different situation, and it's an yeah. And for me, role. it's trying to find the difference between someone like Castor Semenya, you know, and having 
people say an inherent biological advantage um, versus someone like Michael Phelps, who also has a biological advantage in that he apparently processes lactic acid or doesn't produce as much lactic acid as most other swimmers. You know what I mean? So when we start talking about, you know, hormones and things that people's bodies do that give them an advantage, I sort of feel like, you know, as a gymnast, everybody who was naturally five feet tall and built like a bird had a huge advantage over me, you know, I'm five, seven. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I guess I have a hard time separating out the arguments from the inherent advantages that, that most superior athletes have. Well, that's why we're superior because we worked our asses off to get to that point. And, you know, I'm built in such a way that I could have never been a gymnast. I'm, I'm too tall and too muscular, uh, too short to be a basketball player. So you kind of gravitate to there's a sport that you're good at. But, uh, you know, you take Missy Franklin and you take uh, Ryan Lochte and uh, 200 meter uh, backstroke. Uh, they have the same wing. They're six foot two, six foot four wingspan. They weigh about the same. Maybe Ryan's a little bit heavier. All the same training, everything. But Ryan's, I think, like 12 seconds faster in world record than uh, than what uh, Missy Franklin is. And there's dozens and dozens of men that swim faster than, than Missy. So that's the testosterone difference. And so no matter, you, there's no overlap between at the, at the elite level. There's no overlap. There's no matter how hard the women train and how physically amazing they are, they cannot compete with the top men at that level. And there is hundreds of them that are that are faster than or stronger than than the women. Uh, the hundred meter is a very great example. And there's hundreds of kids that are fifteen year old boys are faster than the fastest woman. So biology, you know, it's. Uh, and it, anyway, so I, I, I hate that people would be excluded, but you can compete at certain levels. But um, I think um, it's it's just difficult when girls get on the starting blocks and they know they don't have a chance because the 17 year old transgender um, is just going to be faster no matter how hard they train. I kind of take a cue on this uh, from my from my daughters who are 16 and 17 and have a completely different way of looking at gender than I do and anybody that I went to school did. And I really feel like we're at a point now where we're really starting to reevaluate, you know, what it is, and, and especially outside the realm of sports, what gender is, is it a limitation? What is the role? And I feel like I, I am learning so much about this and my idea of what it is, is being expanded all the time. And, um, and of the limitations that I've had, you know, growing up with, you know, and certainly when it comes to how women are looked at uh, by men often uh, and the limitations that are imposed on us. So to me, it feels like this is a conversation where we are starting to have it um, and it is changing every single day. I agree. I feel like our kids' generations are the ones that are going to save the world. I, they really are much more politically active and inclusive and in everything, I feel like, than any generation has been. And I mean, that's the way it should be. Um, but yeah, like that generation continues to amaze me constantly as does Martina Navratilova, who we're so grateful that you were able to join us. Um, Like I said, you know, we were sort of like, well, we should take a moonshot and see if we can get Martina. And then next thing you know, I'm getting an email (laughs) from Jane saying Martina says she'll come on. So we couldn't have had a better guest to kick off our first podcast. We are so grateful for you and for your voice and that you continue to use it. Everybody go follow Martina on Twitter at Martina. You've got one of those names like Cher, you know, that everyone just knows who you're talking about. You know, I got on Twitter late only because I was on Dancing with the Stars back in 2013. And, uh, and uh, I, I didn't really pay much attention to it. And then I realized Martina was available. I'm like, okay, great. So I can get that. 
And then, uh, and then I was just kind of tweeting about the dancing and whatever. And then I realized, wow, this is a great way to get news and get your unfiltered views out there to people that want to read it. So I completely evolved with Twitter. And and just yesterday, I sent out uh, about 160 tweets to people that that are that are like social influencers, you know, uh, celebrities or activists and politicians that follow me and I send them a direct message asking them to uh, retweet something for people to get out and register. I'll be sending another one in a couple of weeks for people to go and make sure they vote and they carry their ballot and et cetera. So it's just given you such a, given me such a platform that I wish I had had uh, 30 years ago because it's unfiltered. Every interview you do, it's, it's shown through the lens of that person, whether it's uh, even on TV, they ask the questions uh, and when it's on and it's print, they they cut it out, they edit it out. So this is really such a great chance for athletes, particularly, to be heard without anybody censoring them and uh, and uh, changing the conversation. So um, yeah, here we are. And um, so Twitter Twitter has been uh, a godsend for me. Although my wife is uh, you know complaining that I'm on it too much, but you should talk yeah. to my husband because he's always like, "Why do you do this to yourself? Just get off." Yeah, well, we got about uh, 50 days to go, so here we are. <laughs> well, I, I, I know Jane and I both really appreciate your voice. And again, thank you so much thank for you. joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. 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 Julie, Martina has always been kind of a hero of mine. She's such an incredible person, and I think you can get that from that conversation. Of course, I think she does alienate some people when she um, talks the way that she does uh, about competition and gender and competition. And I'm, you know, I'm very, I, I, I find it uncomfortable to talk about sometimes. And I know you do too. And part of it is that, um, you know, we don't necessarily identify in a way that is marginalized. Right. So that talking about it from that point of view is a little bit challenging. Um, and also wanting to be as inclusive as possible is, I think, something that you and I try to do. But it is difficult to talk about these um, these issues. And I think that, you know, she comes from a very specific point of view, which is she competed at the very highest level in an individual sport where every advantage needed to be 100% fully realized in order mm-hmm. to be successful. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, it was hard to ask her about that. You know, I mean, she is someone who I've admired um, since I was a little girl. Always looked at her as, you know, the the person on the mountaintop that this is what you can do no matter what sport you're in, if you really apply yourself. And I and I admire the way that she uh, advocates for causes she believes in. But, you know, you and I, um, you know, I don't want to say it's necessarily a generational gap because I know that there are people in both generations. There are transphobic people in our generation, and there are people who are very transprogressive in her generation. And and I I guess it heartens me a little bit to know that she's not denying that being transgender is valid or legitimate. She's not saying trans women aren't women. She's not doing like a JK Rowling on it, that it's just very specific for her with sports, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, she just doesn't think that if you have achieved puberty as a biological male, that you should then be able to compete against women. Definitely, she has, she knows more about this than you or I do, right? I mean, she she's obviously researched this and knows what she's talking about. For me, it's just the idea that, is this really a huge problem? Like, is right. this, you know, I mean, 
And when I think of all the transgender women, it feels like every week we hear about another trans woman who's been murdered um, or harassed or beaten up. To me, those are much bigger problems. And this to me just feels a little bit, I hate to say it, but mean spirited. Yeah, well, you have Tulsi Gabbard, who has introduced, uh, you know, some legislation potentially about the, you know, whatever gender purity in sports act. Or I, I mean, I don't know if that's not the real name. That's that's my misrepresentation <laughs> of the name. We should call um, it that. But, yes, exactly. The gender purity test. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I think it all boils down to this idea that the most important thing about somebody, if they want to play sports, is whether they're a boy or whether they're a girl. And to me, that is, you know, it's as someone who, you know, forced her way as a seven-year-old into the neighborhood baseball games and football games, I've always had to counter that idea mm-hmm. that one has to play with the gender that one belongs to, quote-unquote, whatever that is. And my experience is of playing, and I've played, and I think co-ed play is incredibly important because it is inclusive and because it does show you the capabilities of other people that you're playing with. You can't discount a woman who keeps scoring threes on you. And I feel like that to me is, is kind of the experience that most people have when it comes to sports and gender is playing with people of the opposite sex. And I feel like that's important. And so I kind of feel like this, I, I mean, so for me, that is what comes to mind. And I agree with you is, is this, is this the most important piece of legislation that Tulsi Gabbard has to offer in the middle of a pandemic when we're going through reevaluation of the way that this country has handled race, you know, for the last 300 years, I just don't think it is. And yeah, um, and and so the idea that we're going to exclude people rather than find ways to include them at this particular moment, you know, it's hard to get behind. Think of how hard high school is anyway, for those of us that are straight, cisgender, white kids. It's hard enough. Imagine going through high school as someone who is trans and has, has, you know, transitioned. And now you want to take sports away. Like one of the few things kids can do to feel part of a group and feel normal. And, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, a young woman and you're getting beat consistently in the, you know, butterfly stroke, because, you know, you're competing against a trans woman. That's just not where I want to place my energy, I guess, is, is, you know, for lack of a better way to talk about it. And the differences, I think, for most of us, you know, are not going to be for most people are not going to be so extreme that it's going to be the margin between winning and losing. So if the idea is if you real, you know, that excluding people, I, I don't know, I played roller derby and Wolf does allow trans women to play roller derby forever, like mm-hmm. for the last decade. And that has been my experience. And I love, you know, and I, I have a lot of, you know, teammates who, we're exploring ideas of, of sexuality and gender identification and as they played. And I just kind of feel like that is what I'm much more comfortable with is including everyone and finding yeah. ways to include and not exclude. And I, so I, I agree with you, but I do, you know, she comes at it from a very particular point of view, which is being the best in the world at something. And I, maybe I just have a really hard time to relate relating to that concept because I've never been the best in the world at anything. So having someone who I was competing at, you know, the way that she competed with Chris Everett and it was a tightrope between the two of them and every margin mattered. Well, I just can't, I mean, I can't really relate to that all that much except as a spectator. You know, we should have asked Martina about how it felt to have herself featured, although someone else playing her on Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I can't believe <laughs> I didn't ask her that. 
<laughs> well, you know what? Maybe we get another chance because she's awesome. And she is um, great. She was really, it was really nice of her to come on and to discuss these types of things with us. Yeah. Because and to be honestly, open to discussing things that we disagree about, you know, which I think is so important. I mean, we're all trying to grow and learn from each other all the time. Well, so and 100%. And she, I, Julie, I think when we started talking about this, I was like, I don't know that I'm right on this. I don't feel right. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like I have a point of view that is well established and bulletproof on this. I feel like I need to do a lot more listening. Mm-hmm. You know, when you said that you worked your way into, you forced your way into uh, neighborhood games as a seven-year-old, it made me think, I did the same thing, only I was, the other boys on my block were high schoolers. (laughs) (laughs) So I, and I just think like, you know, they were out there, they were playing 500, they were playing football, they were like playing hotbox, whatever. I had forced my way into it. And at the time, I felt like I was perfectly like entitled to be there as a little girl. But now I just think of these like, you know, 16 year old guys having this like seven year old girl following them around and wanting to play sports with them all the time. And Casey Wolf, Dean Dumont, all you guys out there who grew up on my block, (laughs) Bill and Bruce Shemp, you guys were so nice to me. If you're listening to this, I appreciate you. See, and it's paid off in droves for you. Julie. And it had nothing to do with being a girl. It had to do with being a seven-year-old tagging along with a bunch of high schoolers. No, a hundred percent. But, but look, you're making a living now based on, (laughs) based on those experiences because you were like, wow, that worked well enough there. I'm just going to keep barging in. I'm good enough to play 500 with these guys. Just playing the high school baseball team. That's awesome. I can do talk radio. I'm sports (laughs) talk radio. Why not? Yeah, exactly. No, but seriously though, like a lot of our experiences just like from in a community sense with people from different economic backgrounds, races, genders, et cetera, come from playing, you know, either in a sand lot, whatever the modern equivalent of a sand lot is, you know, random basketball court in the community or whatever, come from that kind of casual play experience. And I just, I really, I feel like that's, it's an important part of American culture. And it's an important part for a a important way that people kind of get to know people who aren't like them. Yeah. And I think that especially for, for young women, it's a huge confidence builder. And I mean, when I got to the point, because I played soccer with boys for a million years, like in club soccer, because there were no girls teams. And then suddenly you get to the point where someone's like, no, you can't do this because you're a woman. And it's like, it sort of smacks you in the face because it's like, but I've been doing stuff with the boys all along. Yeah, exactly. The kids seem to have got it sorted. It's the adults who need to work on. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's it's the Tulsi Gabbards of the world. Yes. that, (laughs) That need to be educated. This has been great. I was great talking to you, Julie. I know. I enjoy talking to you too. And, you know, we launched our first two episodes this week and the feedback has been so phenomenal. I'm really grateful to everyone who listened and downloaded and retweeted us. And because, you know, everybody's got a podcast these days, Jane. It's like, like I said, like your mother-in-law has a podcast, you know, it's like (laughs) everyone's stuck inside. So they're just like, hey, how do I pull up a microphone and put my thoughts out there into the universe, which is great. But there's so many great podcasts out there to choose from. And anyone who has ever listened to me on my old radio show, I'm all about true crime podcasts. I I listen to them nonstop. So when you take time out of your busy podcast schedule to fit us in there, we're really, really (laughs) grateful. A hundred percent. And keep listening to us and, you know, join those, um, the three one-star ratings uh, that we got (laughs) before before our first episode was even available. The episode Um, was not even up. And we had one star ratings telling us how much we sucked. I didn't actually, I didn't read the review. I tried to counter review. I was going to give us five stars. I like listening to us, but then it didn't register. And I'm like, I don't know how, how is it that these folks get to have their star counts and I cannot, and I don't know what to do about that, but we're going to figure it out. We're going to keep trying. (laughs) Exactly. 
Thanks for joining us. We hope that you guys will follow us on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. Hope that you guys will read our work over at Deadspin. Subscribe and rate the podcast, and we'd be much obliged. We hope that you guys will keep tuning in. We'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us in the ladies' room. Bye, 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 bye. Okay, we're done. <laughs> very good, very good.